Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And today we are actually going to end the Saxon miniseries where I'll give you a little bit of an overview of how that time period actually was. And we'll take a step back and not just look at kings and battles. But um, first we're going to look at the kings and battles. So uh, today we start with St. Henry. That's, that's Henry II. He was a saint. He is a saint. Um, and he's also the last of the Etonians. Not, he's not even an Otto. The last of the Ludolfinger. And after this, we'll get to a Frankish dynasty again, but not, not like immediately because there's a bunch of other topics I want to start. And I'm not even sure the next dynasty is going to be a mini series. So it's just, um, yeah, I want to talk about um, like the origins of Yiddish and Ashkenazi Jews and the empire and uh, medieval castles up to this point or yeah, even further and households and just all kinds of other stuff that that isn't king to king and battle to the battle. So let's wrap up this mini series on the Saxons and the Etonian dynasty. In any case, from 995 onward, this Henry was Duke of Bavaria. Now, Henry II was a great-grandson. He was not the son of Otto III, if you remember from the last episode. Um, Otto III just died suddenly, like a chump. I was kind of upset about that. Henry II was great-grandson of Henry I. Uh, if you remember the Fowler, Henry the Fowler, the one who really started the dynasty, if you don't count Louis-Dolf, and we don't. Then oh, Henry's second cousin, Otto III, died. He became king of the Romans. And that brings us to the year 1002. Now, there's Henry, the Duke of Bavaria. Now, this is quarrelsome Henry's son. The Henry the quarrelsome or Henry the troublemaker, uh, whatever I called him. Uh, in German, it's Zenka. That guy. He was the villain of the last episode. So, this is his son, which means that Henry II... Um, who Henry the Tenka was also Henry the Second of Bavaria, so I don't want to get confused. Now we're talking about Henry the Second, the Holy Roman Emperor, the King of Germany, um, Rex Romanorum. Okay, so that Henry the Second. Okay, what that means is, uh, if you recall from last episode, Henry the Troublemaker spent most of his or spent his remaining years or thirty some years in locked up in in a, in a monastery. Okay, so this Henry the Second means that means that this Henry the Second spent most of his childhood in exile while his father was imprisoned by the bishop in Utrecht. Is is it all coming back to you now? Okay, maybe not. So Henry was one year old when his father picked a fight with Otto the Second. During his father's captivity, he lived in Hildesheim and was brought up by Saint Wolfgang. Wolfgang got his saintly title by being sent to the Hungarians by Otto the Great to convert them. 
Now remember, Otto the Great, so Adelheid, Otto the Great's wife, she was still alive until shortly before this time, so if they didn't all die like chumps of fever, is my point, they would still be alive. So there's there's several people that remember Otto the First or Otto the Second, and they're still alive and kicking for generations later, um, because they didn't get malaria and died like chumps in Italy. Anyway, so uh, Wolfgang gets sent to, to Hungary way back in the day, and now towards the end of his life, Wolfgang, because he died of old age, like a normal person, so he apparently got tired of the political life and went to become a hermit. The lake where he lived out his days is called Wolfgangsee today, and it's in Austria. Okay, that, that's a neat story. Let's get back to Henry. So the reason I made a point of bringing that up anyways is Henry himself is venerated as a saint, like I mentioned, which means the church liked him, which that's all really important. Okay. Now, because Henry used the church as leverage against the nobility, the church grew during his reign and actually shifted the balance of power within the empire. And remember that Otto III died suddenly for no reason at all, other than just being silly, with no heir. So now, it's not like Henry was the clear-cut heir. Remember, his father was imprisoned by, I mean, by the Ottos. It's just not, um, you know, who is this guy? He had other, in fact, Ottos set other um, favorites on the, uh, to the Duke of Bavaria, Duke of Swabia, and that kind of thing. So at least there were, there were at least three other contenders. Most of those had way better claims than, than our Henry. For instance, Hermann II of Swabia was a better one. But Henry, so how did Henry get it? This is a great story, glad you asked. When the procession with Otto III's body was passing through Bavaria, remember he died like a chump in Italy, and his, he's buried in Aachen, like I said, so if you look at a map, all right, he's going through Bavaria, his body is going through Bavaria because he died like a chump, and what, Henry just jacked the imperial insignia. So he just, you know, stopped the procession, said, hey, you know, and just basically robbed it, including the Holy Lance. The one we brought up so many times now, I'm going to skip right over it, other than to say it's that same lance that Charles IV will break. Uh, if you listen to the Bohemian podcast, it will end up in Rudolf II's collection, which I just finished a book on. That lance, it's the one that Otto I charged into the Battle of Lechfeld against the Hungarians with. Same lance. The same supposed lance that pierced Jesus' side while on the cross to make sure he's dead. Though probably not actually that lance, but revered as that lance. Okay, so Henry demands from the bishops leading the procession to like just instantly crown him, but no dice. So Henry has the archbishop arrested, which is an odd thing for a saint to do, but ho hold on. And he also has his brother arrested, too, who is also a bishop. So it's kind of weird that he's a saint now that I think about it. But um, anyway, so Otto's funeral in Aachen, Henry tries again and fails again to kind of take, take charge. So he goes off and just has himself crowned king of Germany, Rex Romanorum, actually. This is, people get confused um, why we translate it differently. Because they're really German kings, but they call themselves Roman kings. It just, it, yeah, that's just how it is. Anyway, so he goes to Mainz, has himself crowned, and he's the first German king to do this since Henry I, because um, everybody else is elected. And, you know, it's just kind of, they have an heir, and it's pretty clear Otto the I made sure Otto II was crowned during his lifetime. Same for Otto III. And Otto III just died too early. He didn't have an heir. This is the first time a king simply skipped the election process. He does win over some Saxons. 
For instance, he promises Bernard I, who's now Duke of Saxony, that he can rule the Saxons, etc. Henry travels around, you know, kind of on a, well, it's kind of like an election campaign, but he didn't get himself elected. He garners support, and he manages to do that within a few months. And we're going to, so one way to define his reign is, is Henry's reign is mostly marked with conflict with Poland, which again is kind of weird and silly because Poland was an ally to the Ottos. So we're going to see, this is, I'm bringing this up because this is a weird dynamic that changes between the Ottos and Henry. It's during his reign where Bohemia and Germany really team up against Poland, making Bohemia even more a part of the Holy Roman Empire. That's another question I've gotten many times, like <laughs> on Reddit, for instance, is why is Bohemia still, you know, their Czech even today, where if you look at a map of the, of the Holy Roman Empire and even the later Austrian Empire, if you look at those combined, it looks like there's a Slavic bite taken out of this big Germanic-speaking realm. Why is that? Well, this is one of those reasons. So we, some were already before, but especially here in the uh, 10th and 11th century, we see the relationship of um, Germans just conquering Wens and Sorbs. Oh yeah, Wens and Sorbs, that episode. Actually, that episode might be next. Um, yeah, so who those guys are. Slavs within the Holy Roman Empire, basically. Those guys ended up speaking German. Those guys are gone today, uh, culturally, eth ethnically, basically. But Czechs are still alive and well. So why is that? It's because the Czechs teamed up early. The Czechs were allies against other people and paid, were fine with paying tribute. Like I've mentioned in earlier episodes, Charlemagne first nominally conquered them and made them pay tribute. And uh, so, that, I mean, it goes way back. And, and they just had this relationship. So they're, they're, you know, there was a Holy Roman Emperor and there was the King of Bohemia. And, and there was a kingdom within the empire. And that just happened. So I'm bringing all that up because that's going to, you're going to ask that question later, I guarantee. This is the answer to that question before you even knew you had the question. Does that make sense? No? Okay, we'll just move on. So basically what happened is an assassination attack failed against Boleslav the I of Poland. He was really injured badly, and he also blamed Henry. His Bohemian ally, uh, also a very similar name, Boleslaus, Boleslaus, with an S at the end instead of a V, well, that's how we'll all di differentiate. Um, it's also spelled differently. He, so he was invited to Poland, and he came to enjoy the hospitality there. And the Polish king Boleslaw promptly had Boleslaus blinded and imprisoned for 30 years until he died. Now, Polish Boleslaw takes over Bohemia. That's most of the Czech Republic today. If you're still confusing Bohemia and Czech, they are the same thing. Um, if you also count, count Moravians, but whatever. So Henry was occupied with revolts in Italy at this time. But when he came back in 1004, he waged war with Poland for 14 years off and on. So I'm not going to describe every battle and every little tiff, but I want you to know that that's basically always going on in the background. For 14 years, there's this, these, these little skirmishes and wars and stuff with Poland, um, who was an ally with the Ottos. So it's just kind of a weird um, thing that suddenly Henry's fighting him all the time. Although I guess it's kind of like Otto II was, uh, had, had arguments with Harold Bluetooth. So yeah, it kind of makes sense. Okay, now Prague itself was captured by Jaromir, sort of a traitor if you ask the Czechs, because it's under him where Bohemia really becomes a German vassal basically for until World War One, really. But um, this, I don't want to oversimplify that much. They, they got their independence a couple times. 
This, anyways, this Czech-German marriage was a rough one. Lots of domestic disputes over the next thousand years. Definitely ended in a divorce in 1945, definitively. Uh, but now everyone's friends in the European Union, so it's all good. We're going to move on. If you ask me, it's Jaromir's doing that the Czechs speak Czech and not German, frankly. So maybe they should be very thankful. But... If, I mean, if you look at it, like the Prussians lost their language. They, the Prussians were a Baltic language. And the Wends and Slavs south, north of Bohemia, all they speak German. Well, until... Uh, it's a, okay, anyways. Um, but Bohemia is like a Slavic bite, right? Like, I, that's the way I put it. But yeah, I don't want to talk about wars the whole time. So, long story short, Boleslav marries a granddaughter of Otto II, and eventually all is good. But that's 14 years later. So, all right. One little detail here. During all this time, he is king, not emperor, because the same Italian feuding families that are setting up their own popes and anti-popes and all this are basically ruling Rome at this point in history, and therefore keeping Henry from getting crowned emperor, because you can't have a Holy Roman Empire without Rome. Well, they do eventually. Well, anyway, <laughs> okay, we're not there yet. So he doesn't get crowned until 1014. So he's just a German king the whole time, technically king of the Romans the whole time. So he does get back from Rome eventually. He gathers his armies to finish this business with Poland, attacking from the north, south, and center. Atrocities were committed by the troops, it's noted. Women and children died. And finally, a fourth peace treaty was signed in 1018. A few years later, the Pope travels to Bamberg and tells Henry to invade southern Italy. He didn't do too well against the Byzantines, but did establish his authority somewhat. Okay, now unlike the Ottos, who were influenced by Italian Adelheids or Byzantine Theophanus, if you remember, they even, Otto III especially, just ruled from Rome, Henry's wife was a Burgundian, and he preferred north of the Alps. He grew up in Hildesheim, remember? He, Henry did push the borders back east, retaking some of the land lost in the Great Slavic Revolt, which will come up in the next couple episodes. And when his wife, Kunigunde of Luxembourg, got sick, he founded the Kaufingen Abbey where she recovered. And now Henry was really big on monks and the clergy being celibate. So that was one of the reforms he had and one of his preferences, which is, okay. So then he took it maybe a little bit too far because then he made himself a monk. But he was talked out of it by the abbot of Verdun, saying it was his duty to rule the empire. Now, come on now, Henry, you got a job to do. And now there's one other major event that happens after, you know, within 50 years of this, but it starts with Henry. So Henry really meddles in the church is my point. What he does here is Henry talked Pope Benedict VIII into adding Philoche into the Nicene Creed, which is saying, and the son. Philoche is and the son. So meaning the Holy Spirit emanates from the father and the son. Now... Should I go into this? Um, it's, it's, it's exactly this sort of thing that would cause the Great Schism of 1054, okay? So that's why it's important. The really great one. This is, you know, why there's Catholics and Orthodox even more so today, why they're two totally distinct churches. Um, so Henry did not help this. I mean, I think it was kind of bound to happen anyway, since, since the Romes, the popes were so tied up with Germany and 
uh, all the other, the Eastern churches were so tied up with Greek Byzantines, I think it was kind of bound to happen. It was already happening, but in 1054, it came to a head. It's this kind of language, like philoke, it's, that's what, I mean, this is what happened. They did, he became too meddlesome. It's, it's, it's here under the Atonians, but obviously, especially under St. Henry, where this happens, bishops and clergy become secular rulers. That's why the Holy Roman Empire gets really convoluted compared to like England or France or even Rome. Bishops help elect kings, kings keep abbeys, abbeys are loyal to the emperor, therefore, uh, not the church. Church and state really gets blurry. In the Ottonian time, yes, but like Otto II just really blurs these lines. Now, Holy Roman Empire, remember? You might have heard that it wasn't holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. It was holy in so far as the empire and the papacy went hand in hand. It was Roman, especially as Otto II and Otto III built their royal residences in Rome, and it was most certainly an empire. They were king of kings. One which basically founded dioceses further east instead of border marches now, making them a Holy Roman Empire in that sense of the word. Now, is the Catholic Church really holy? That's a question for another time. The Holy Roman Empire is almost accurate, except we really are talking about German kings here. Ottos used relatives to fill the seats of nobility. Henry wasn't related as closely to those people, remember? So, you know, it's, yeah. So he used the church. Henry died of a painful urinary infection. Oh, should I have eased you into that? Uh, too late. He's he's dead. It's 1024. Henry is dead. He, I can't can't take it back now. Both him and his wife ended up being canonized just in time for his relics to be brought into battle against heretics. He's also the patron saint of Basel. Um, he did not have an heir, though, since he wanted to be a celibate monk. Maybe he had something to do with it. I don't know. But um, So we get the Frankish Salian dynasty next. But wait, because I went through his life pretty quickly. And that's because I want to tie this miniseries up nicely with more than just kings in their lives. So the point here I want to make is it's, it's Henry that really makes it the Holy Roman Empire. More generally speaking, okay, so in this time... By Henry's time, we can now take a step back and look and see that the society that Henry ruled was much more hierarchical than during the Franks. More formal, more organized, more ritual around rank. Seating orders were contested, like if you're at a table and where you sat at court kind of thing. So it was a scandal when a nobleman stayed seated while Heinrich stood kind of thing. Like we get that from the chroniclers. Just That's just an anecdote to show some differences between Saxons and Franks. The Franks wouldn't have cared. Uh, also, like who could own falcons? Remember, Henry I was the fowler. So dukes would not wear furs when there was a higher-ranking nobleman around, for instance. So they could wear furs in their own little castles. In his own place, he could wear a fur coat or whatever. But when he goes on an official visit or when a higher-ranking nobleman comes to visit, he takes that fur coat off. So he's whenever he's basically not the big cheese in the room. The big cheese is the only person that wears furs. That was, that was a sign of, of rank. It's, it's interesting. And these are actually marks of a kind of an illiterate society. Because people, you know, you just walk into a room 
and you just see, you can just tell who's in charge. You can tell um, all these things. So what, what we could say here is, okay, the Carolinian Renaissance was over. Um, the Saxons, for the most part, really couldn't read. It was back to mainly just monks. But we are going to see the Ottonian Renaissance, which is happening right now. So don't worry. We're still not using the words Dark Ages because that would be inaccurate, like horrifically. But it was the church that knew how to hold the ceremonies like coronations and weddings. The nobility and even the kings were helpless without the literate clergy to write and read stuff for them. And so, more and more rites went to the church. We see bishops having serfs and holding land. It couldn't be inherited, but the office and position would pass to the next bishop who was appointed. So we see bishops that are they're acting as nobility, collecting taxes, etc. Heinrich II is the one that really seemed to embrace this. The house of God was the empire. The Pope and the Emperor ruled together in a way, and the Catholic Church was a church of the Holy Roman Empire. Seriously, the Catholic Church was an institution of the Holy Roman Empire. Should I say that again? The Catholic Church was an institution of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, if they were not, they was, that was the anti-Pope. There's, there's an episode in here, believe me, which I'll, I'll get to. But um, yeah, so... <laughs> Yeah, there were anti-popes at this time for a reason. So the, the official papacy was, yeah, due to the German Empire. Henry embraced the idea of the theocratic state even, like the return of King David's holy kingdom. That, that was his sort of philosophy. And he had that sort of vision as a king. And Henry, uh, we see also that he couldn't really depose noblemen. He, he tried, he wished he could. So he didn't really have that absolute power the way that even Henry I might have had. His job was to forgive and forge peace in the empire. On the family level, it's not too different from the Franks. We see these patriarchal households, meaning men had all the rights over their families. Whether a nobleman in a castle or a peasant farmer in a hut, the, the wife had no legal rights at all, no standing. It was the man that just made choices. Now, one chronicler, Tietmar of Merseburg, writes that stoning, according to the Old Testament, was still gone. Beheading, like the Romans, died out too. And even though the men have the right to kill a wife, caught cheating, this hardly ever happened. And according to Tietmar, the wives were pretty naughty at the time because of no real punishments. Now, that's his opinion. I'm just going to go ahead and say... Does that mean that women had some reasonable rights at the time? I mean, Tietmar seems to be saying it's it's a shame more wives aren't killed by their husbands, basically. I mean, seriously. But but we do see powerful women. Adelheid, Otto I's wife, was a gateway to the king, a real political queen. Heinrich I's queen was similar. And then, of course, Teofanu, Otto's II wife, was the first European empress, and even ruled as regent for a bit. So it seems that when it comes to administrating the actual household, the women really did wear the trousers, actually, in fact. And in fact, priests even often married at the time because, get this, it was often seen as impossible for a man to organize a house by himself. They're just helpless without their, their women. So sometimes these women were even called priestesses. 
presbyteresses, really, or however you pronounce that. But but okay, so they didn't actually serve on the altar during services or or, or conduct mass or anything. But they just kind of held that title. They were the wives of priests, something which Martin Luther fought for. That's just interesting. Okay, so. Pope Benedict VIII really took note of this in 1022, and he also had a big problem with it. So it's Henry II, remember, that said everybody should be celibate, and he put down the law saying that priests' children don't have the right to inheritance because priests shouldn't have children, according to the Catholic Church. So Protestants are fine with that. So another reform was the monasteries could elect their own abbot. This was the influence of the nobility curtailed, okay? So this happened slowly over time. This was a right granted. Before this, the, it was not the monasteries. The monasteries were definitely underneath the local noblemen or even the king himself. So if the king didn't like what they were doing, well, he appointed the next abbot, kind of like, you know, a Supreme Court justice sort of thing. And so it's a, it gives a balance of power is my point. So this would just add to the clustery that is the Holy Roman Empire's hierarchy is, yeah, it's, it's, and it's ultimately why it became so decentralized. Um, you have, you have people totally autonomous and ruling themselves. That's, that's what would really define the Holy Roman Empire. That hence it wasn't really an empire, but that's later. It was at this point. And in, in Henry, in, in Henry II's time, he was called the monk king. Anyways, Saxon Kaisers, emperors, would come back in the 12th and 13th centuries. But right here, let me, let me go ahead and say this is the official end of the Louis Dolfinger dynasty. Henry's dead. What other noteworthy things at this time was the Silver Fennec becomes popular over the Eastern Europe during this time. As with the Frankish Empire, the cultural centers were stifts like monasteries and bishop's seat. Those were really the, the cultural, that's where the learning happened. And the, the reason I bring up the, the Fennec was, uh, I grew up with the Deutschmark and the Fennec. So Fennec is like, was like the cent to, to the Deutschmark's dollar, okay? Um, it's gone now. Now we have euros and euro cent. But but in my childhood, I remember Phoenix. Uh, so those existed. Those existed for a thousand years. But they were silver back then as a more noble currency. One Phoenix uh, right before the euro, one Phoenix was worth one half cent. So not a kind of lost in. Yeah, kind of sad. Um, anyways, and then we might also see Germany's first capital? Question mark. Um, because at this time, it might be important to point out that Kaisers did not have a capital city. Like I've said many times before, they, they traveled a lot. They, they moved around the empire. The Franks did this. Charlemagne's favorite residence was Aachen, but it was far from his only one. He had like a top five list kind of thing. And for centuries after emperors would build imperial palaces in the bigger towns in which they wanted to stay and hold court wherever they were. So the capital moved with them. Charlemagne's favorite was Aachen. Henry I founded Goslar at the beginning of the dynasty, so way back when, actually not that far ago, uh, just a hundred years ago. And Heinrich II, and especially the later Frankish Kaisers, not the earlier ones, Goslar became the favorite residence. So it kind of replaced Aachen as, as the place to hang out. Goslar was built out, given attention by, by the future generations that we're going to mention. Charles IV names it an imperial town, a Reichsstadt. And uh, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I didn't know all that much about Goslar. And when I looked it up, I realized that's because 
of the old Frankish Saxon history, it was also important to someone else, namely the Nazis. I learned about Reich's Thanksgiving, Reich's Antedankfest. Goslar was made the headquarters of the Reich's Nährstand. Now, Reich in this part is the Third Reich, as in Nazis, so the Bad Reich. Um, Holy Roman Empire is das Heilig Römische Reich, so the word Reich itself doesn't mean anything bad, it just means empire. Hitler turned it into something bad. So, like, you can't, you don't say, yeah, anyways, anyways, moving on. Uh, so, Goslar was part of their, uh, the Nazis' farming propaganda. They held their Reich's Thanksgiving, which was the third largest Nazi fest outside of Berlin and Nuremberg. So, frankly, I also then again kind of lost interest on Goslar, and I apologize for that, but that's enough on Goslar for me. So we end the Saxon miniseries. When the Ottonian dynasty fell, it was the Salier Franks that took over. Saxons were often a thorn in the Franks' sides after this happened because they were used to having more power. And in fact, eventually so much so that Lothar is able to obliterate the Kaiser's army in a rebellion. So the empire elects him king. And so another Saxon comes to power in 1125. But now I'm jumping way ahead. It's, so it's, it's, it's really interesting, these, these royal elections also. Um, do you think they ever went smoothly? The, the Holy Roman Emperor was also elected, just as German kings were, technically at least. So in short, no, noblemen did not give up power easily to someone they did not vote for. Doors were locked, threats were made, everybody had castles, remember? So I don't want to, to go into a lot of detail of the election in this era, because I'll break it down much better when I cover the later Holy Roman Empire, because it actually it gets more convoluted and it starts to settle into something that, that I can describe easier, because um, it keeps changing, so there's no point in doing that now, it's going to change again and again. So, but basically... Uh, Bavarians, Swabians, Franks, and Saxons send ten Fürsts. Those are like princes in the that sense, in principality sense. And, and they had nominated their candidates. And sometimes the candidates would refuse to run. Sometimes the noblemen wouldn't swear to follow the nominees. I mean, it was just, yeah, it wasn't clear-cut. It wasn't an election cycle. Um, yeah, the UN would have something to say about it, I'm sure. So, long story short, doors of rooms were locks, threats were made, like I said, oaths were often given under duress, which is, yeah, that's true, and democratic oligarchy at its finest, really. Now, basically, the region going with the Saxon tribe, as in, like, Saxony, ceased to be. By the late Middle Ages, there are some 75 quasi-independent lords in the old Saxon area, many of them with Frankish blood. I mean, not technically, you know, old Germanic Saxon tribe um, heritage anymore. What we have is Westphalia, Westfalen. We have the area around Cologne, Köln, and the, the more eastern Saxons. And finally, the Braunschweig, Lüneburg, Brunswick, I guess, in English. So we have 40 of the late medieval period entities are in Niedersachsen today, another... Lower Saxony, I guess it is in English. And Saxon cities later end up being a major part of the Hanse cities, which oh, I cannot wait to get to that, the Hanseatic League. So the term, so that's, I'm kind of bringing this up because I want to end the miniseries, which also explains that when we say Saxon today, 
you're probably talking about an East German. <laughs> um, you know, that's that's where Dresden is. is. Dresden is the capital of Saxony, but there's also Sachsen-Anhalt. There's Lower Saxony, which is, you know, uh, the area around Hamburg. Hamburg is its own principality because of the Hanseatic League. So, yeah, it's, it's anyways. Um, we If you move south and east along the Elbe, then you have Niedersachsen, Lower Saxony, which is that's the eastern part and and that eastern part kind of becomes the kingdom of hanover um and many other such principalities and only in the 20th century does it really become you know the niedersachsen the the state we know of it today and obersachsen which wasn't a part of original saxony that's upper saxon wasn't a part of original saxony at all um and is today called saxon so, so today's saxony with dresden as its capital which is on the border of Poland and the Czech Republic and Bavaria, that wasn't that had nothing to do with the tribal Saxony of back in the day. So it shifted over time. And why did it shift? Well, because of these guys, because the the Saxon dynasty marched east, and um, so that's that's yeah, that's that. Now the Ottonian Renaissance is awesome, and I'm saving the best for last here. We have, if you want to, this is cool to like do a Google image search. This is where a podcast kind of has its failings because what I want to show you are, are the manuscripts from this time period, the the illuminations, the artistic renderings of monks and abbeys, um, which are just gorgeous and beautiful and definitely far, a far cry from something that could be called a dark ages. Uh, art fl- flourished within the monasteries, granted, but um, if you if you just Google Ottonian Renaissance, you'll see the Münchner Evangeliar of Otto III. What is that in English? I'm sorry. It's it's a part of the Bible for made for Otto III. Um, we also see the Perikopenbuch for Hen- Henry II. That's what it's called. And the Bamberger Apocalypse, which was done around 1020. And these all, these all, those belong to the Reichenauer School. They're listed by UNESCO as, you know, one of the, like a world heritage document type of things. And what, what marks these, if you look at them as like huge, just single tone, single color uh, surfaces with kind of a, often with a golden border or a golden background even. And it just has a specific style. So, and and this style then later influenced the 20th century expressionism, which was also heavy and you know heavily focused in Germany. Really, it was a, most of those artists were German. Let's say carefully. I'll carefully make that statement. Um, not all, obviously. A lot of, were French. Don't don't send me emails or English. Don't just leave me alone. But yeah, it's different than what came after. It's different than what became before. So my point is that art continued to evolve and grow in this time. Um, noteworthy art. I, I would recommend, you know, looking up Ottonian Renaissance and clicking around because it's cool. Those manuscripts are, are amazing. Now, just to mention some of the later Saxon things so that it's in this mini series, Henry the Lion, founder of the Bavarian capital city of Munich, was a Saxon, for instance. He was also Duke of Saxony at the time, and he really, for, to him, Bavaria was a backwater, and he really ruled Saxon, Saxony. Um, but if I lump those later Saxons in with this series, this series is going to get way too long, and, and it's going to stop also being chronological. So beside, And besides that, Bavarians would get pretty mad if we lump Henry the Lion in with the Saxons, even though he was one, and that's a historical fact. I might not even say that in German because of the on account of the emails, but yeah. So we'll end this mini series on the Saxons here. What's coming up is a mix of 
the continuation of the chronological order. So that means, you know, the Crusades are coming up soon. That, that first episode's well on its way. And I'll take a look at such topics as the Wends and other Slavs, like I mentioned. Now, please be patient if it takes me a while to get to the outlines all ready for the next few episodes. I, I haven't abandoned you. I'm just working on very many things at the same time. And uh, the Vens of oh, the Dana Verk will come up soon, hopefully with um, the host of the, the History of Denmark, Soren Krarup. If I didn't, I know I just butchered his name, but Krarup, maybe. Hmm, sorry. Uh, anyways... And we, so we're, we'll get to the, the next, the Salians, obviously. The Holy Roman Empire continues on the History of Germany podcast. While I get those sorted, I'm working on a half dozen other podcasts. So why not stop by podcastnick.com? I'm not ready to give you a spoiler yet, but there's a whole new show coming very soon. The first three episodes are in the can, written. I have the logo. I had the theme music. I just asked for the RSS feed. Exciting things are afoot but still no spoilers. I would like to recommend Pete's Paranormal podcast for, uh, they're, they're a Dark Myths member. I had a listen and I just really loved it. Um, that's, yeah, so Corey Momberkett, uh does hosts that and it's, and it's fantastic. I'm also a member of the Agora Podcast Network. And August's podcast of the month is Alison Gerlach's Unapologetic Capitalist. I recently was a guest on Christoph's, Christoph's Andreson's uh, The Eastern Border podcast. We talked about the Berlin Wall. And so because of that, you might as well have a listen. That's, that's definitely German history. Um, I think I took up a big chunk of his, his episode, actually. Uh, that turned into a great show. We recently talk, it talked. There's also, I should let you know, so there's a Dark Myths feed podcast which I technically own, so definitely go subscribe to that. Um, and, and they interviewed me there, so you can, if you want to hear more about me and why I'm so bad or good at this, then then that's why you, you'll, I give the answer there. And I was also on the the Agora Exchange. We have there's an Agora feed also, and we talked Brexit with Ben Jacobs from Wittenberg to Westphalia and Royfield Brown from Ten American Presidents. That's on the Agora feed, so go have a listen to that. I'm Travis Dow, and all that stuff I mentioned is linked to on podcastnick.com. That's podcast, N-I-K, dot com. And bis zum nächsten Mal. Danke fürs Zuhören. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.